Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. Today on KUNC's Colorado Edition. When Adam Katz set out to write his very first novel, he left a job in the corporate world and started working in a busy Denver grocery store to make ends meet. Then the pandemic hit, and he realized he needed to document his experience on the front lines. This became a project that was much bigger than me. It was about a community and about a group of people that are forgotten by society. The resulting book highlights what it was really like to be an essential worker during a global pandemic. We'll listen back to a conversation I had with Adam Catt. And we'll hear what climate experts are saying about how much water will be available in the West's most important river basin in the coming months. It's Friday, May 13th. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. Warmer days are here, and the snow that supplies most of the water to the Colorado River is melting. Certainly, our drought-stricken region needs all the water it can get. So as we get through the last few weeks of spring, KUNC's Alex Hager tells us what we can expect for water this summer in the Colorado River Basin. In the middle of the summer, a rainy day in the arid west can feel as satisfying as a long drink in the desert. But really, those precious summer rains barely move the needle when it comes to water. Regardless of what you get in the summer, what really impacts the water availability in the Colorado River is what happens in the winter. That's Becky Bollinger, Colorado's assistant state climatologist. It's worth zooming in on Colorado because snow that falls high in the Rockies makes up two-thirds of the water that flows through the Colorado River, supplying 40 million people across the southwest. So how much snow is there right now? Well, in most spots, close to 90% of normal. But not all of that snow is going to make it into the rivers. Unfortunately, we're dealing with dry soils from the previous start of the season, meaning that a lot of that is going to recharging the soils. Because Colorado has seen back-to-back dry years, the dirt is parched. So when snow melts on top of it, it acts like a sponge, soaking up water on its way downhill. And a lot of the snow is melting earlier than normal. Carl Wetlofer is one of Colorado's top snow researchers. He says that early melt is partially thanks to wind, which blows dust around. When that dust reaches the surface, it retains a lot more of the energy from the sun. So we've also seen a dramatically accelerated snow melt pattern and, uh, and resulting streamflow runoff due to that dust on the snowpack. Between the dust, the dry soil, and the higher than normal temperatures, mountain snow won't be as helpful as the Colorado River needs it to be. It is going to be many, many years before I think we're going to be able to get back up to any, any semblance of normalcy. The region banks up a stash of water in reservoirs from Wyoming to Arizona, and those reserves are getting drained because homes and farms keep drawing water out, and the snowmelts just can't keep up. I would definitely say that this year's snowpack is not going to be enough to substantially increase those storage values. 
The thinking is the same downstream. Erin Ann Saffel is the Arizona state climatologist, where mountain snow is still the difference maker for things like underground water storage. We really depend on our winter precipitation, the snowpack kind of melting and moving into our groundwater more than we um, pay attention to or rely on what happens with our summer precipitation because the nature of the precipitation is different. But enough about snow. Even though it does the heavy lifting in the Colorado River Basin, what falls in the summer does still matter. It's just more subtle. It recharges the stock ponds for the ranchers. Those kinds of things are what we pay attention to. So when we don't get that summer precipitation, there are implications. And even back up north where the Colorado River starts, rain in the warmer months makes a difference for things like limiting the risk for wildfires, keeping the temperatures from getting too hot, and hopefully keeping the soils from drying out too much before the start of the next snowpack season. It's hard for climate scientists to map out the months ahead. Right now, the big question is if that summer rain will arrive when we need it. After the memory of the snowpack is long gone and you need that summer moisture to carry you through to the fall. And that is a component that is really hard to predict far out. What we do know, hot and dry years have been stacking up in the Colorado River Basin, and human-caused climate change is making it less and less likely that things will cool off and get wetter anytime soon. Alex Hager, KUNC. This story is part of ongoing coverage of the Colorado River, produced by KUNC and supported by the Walton Family Foundation. The COVID-19 pandemic revealed a lot of uncomfortable truths about ourselves and our society. One of those things was just how undervalued many essential workers are, especially those in lower-paid service industry jobs. According to an analysis from the Bell Policy Center, around 20% of Colorado's workforce are considered essential workers in fields ranging from healthcare to transportation to stocking the shelves of grocery stores. And whether they consider themselves to be essential or not, there was no option for remote work. They still had to show up to their jobs in the midst of all the uncertainty and chaos of the shutdowns. Many of these essential employees have said they felt unsafe working through the pandemic and have said companies didn't do enough to protect their essential workers from the virus itself and from angry customers who were unhappy with mask requirements or stores running out of particular items. Some of that experience is behind a recent wave of unionization votes across the country, including at several Starbucks locations here in Colorado. Adam Catt had a unique vantage point to understand all of this. He's a Denver-based author and blogger who happened to be working in a busy grocery store right as the pandemic hit. His book chronicles that experience in a novel form. It's called Life on the Grocery Line, a frontline experience in a global pandemic. I spoke with him about the book back in March. Now, this is your first book, and it's not exactly the book that you initially set out to write. Before we dive into that, uh, take us back to 2019. Before the pandemic started, you had aspirations to become an author, but at the time you were working in the corporate world. Is that right? Yeah. You know, like, like so many people, I went to college, you know, just to go to college and I didn't really have a plan or direction. 
And I uh, ended up working in supply chain and customer service for about eight years. And, you know, like I, I want to try something new. So I started, a, I moved to a different company and I ended up being in a toxic situation. The manager wasn't good. Like we didn't, nothing fit right or mixed well. So I decided to quit my job and work on a novel that I've been wanting to write for, I don't know, like 10 years or so. And yeah, it was a completely different novel. It, it, uh, by the end of 2019, I had a draft, but you know, I ran out of money because I cashed out my 401k and done all sorts of foolish things to, you know, make that change in life. But I knew that I needed to, you know, I needed to jump. And that was, the, that was the time. Um, I came to the end of the year with a draft and yeah, I, I need money. So I started working at a grocery store. Yeah. And you took what arguably should have been a pretty easy job to, you know, focus on your writing and you were working, um, as a cashier at a grocery store. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I thought that, you know, it'd be a job that would maybe leave me physically exhausted, but like mentally freed and like, and have mornings open to write. I write best in the morning. Um, I looked at it as kind of a short-term solution and kind of a throwaway job in a way, which sounds insulting now that I've lived through this because it's, it's not, it's much more important than I had originally thought, but I know a lot of people think the same thing. And the store that I worked at was so busy all the time that, you know, it had a, had an energy to it. It has a life force to it. That's fascinating. And I'm so glad that I started working there. But the unexpected happened, and the unexpected thing was the coronavirus. Then things started to just close down. Describe what was happening in the grocery store in those first few weeks and months, and and what was it like from your vantage point? You know, like I think the shutdown, like the lockdowns, happened like St. Patrick's Day weekend or something to that effect, and it went from just it started to get busy. Like there were a lot of people coming in worried about what was going on with the virus and everything, but it really sped up that mid-March and schools shut down, you know, people work from home. The ones that could work from home did restaurants and bars closed. The lines got instantly gigantic. The shelves seemed stripped bare overnight. And it was like you did all the stuff they put on the shelf would be gone the next day. The employees were put under a different protocol seemingly all the time. You know, I had to wipe down a register between each customer for a while, which was exhausting. I mean, when you're talking about hundreds, maybe even a thousand people go through your line in a super busy store like that. My arm got sore. That's a good way to put it. Like my arm got sore after I, um, from doing it so much, but they, they put like limits on the amount of people that could come in. Masks became required. There was a temperature check station for employees that you had to, anytime you went in and out, you had to get your temperature checked. And it honestly was not accurate at all. Like the communal areas, like the cafe closed. It was it was eerie, and I, I guess dystopian is a good way to like say it. It felt weird, like a zombie apocalypse or something. Oh, yeah, that must have had such a phenomenal impact on you and your coworkers. I know the customers you write about in the book were all having different reactions to the news, and maybe depending on where that news was coming from. Can you talk about the first person you saw wearing a mask in the store? The, the first one I really remember, like there might've been a few other ones, but there was this, this one woman that came in and she didn't just wear a mask. She wore like a full like PPE garb. Like she looked kind of like she, I don't know, from maybe the, the movie Outbreak with Dustin Hoffman. Like it was the, 
very, very extreme. She had like a, a face mask shield on, she kind of goggles on, she had wraps around her hands and all sorts of stuff. And she was explaining to me that she lived um, through the AIDS epidemic, like through the eighties. And I like, I, it was jarring to say the least, like just the disconnect too. Cause it's, this isn't remotely like the same thing or anything, but like, she was just full bore. Like she went completely reacting. I don't know. It, it definitely like made me think like, is this, is this that serious? Like before that, I really hadn't thought of it as too serious. And then all of a sudden it became very serious very quickly. Right. Adam, I'm hoping you could read a short passage from your book. And just to set this up, I believe this takes place sort of early on in the pandemic. You've been fielding questions from customers. You've been kind of part therapist, part cashier. And it's close to the end of your shift at the register, but your replacement hasn't shown up yet. Okay. It's been an hour since my call to the supervisor when the phone at my register rings. Hey, dude, Mike greets me. I know you were tired and you were about to go home, but do you think you could stay until close? We had a call out and we really could use the help. I contemplate my level of exhaustion and weigh it against the need for money. Yeah, man, I can help. No problem. Okay, you're awesome. Also, there will be a guy coming through with installing plexiglass dividers here in a little bit. You can take your break then. Uh, dividers? Yeah, word came down from corporate that we need to start adding dividers and providing additional personal protective equipment. A customer just mentioned something about PPE earlier. I guess this is getting serious, huh? It seems so. We get updates periodically. I'll let you know what's happening when I find out. What time will he be at my register? I'm getting hungry. They should be at your register soon. Sorry, I don't have an exact time. Adam, what you describe in that excerpt seems to foreshadow a lot of what's coming, a lot of extra demand on those of you who are still coming to work, um, exhaustion, working extra hours, covering for people who were out sick. Did you feel taken care of by store management? Like, were your concerns heard? I personally, I kind of, I kept my head down a lot. I know a lot of people that I worked with were very, like, they didn't feel like they were getting heard. And I wonder if like a lot of you know, people in general across the board, like, you know, from my parents to my friends, to, to you and your friends and loved ones, if anyone felt like they were getting taken care of, but yeah, it, um, it all seemed to happen so fast that I didn't like notice it until it, I was already doing it. If that makes sense. Like I'm wearing a mask one day and then plexiglass goes up and it all happened so fast that I later on, later on down in the pandemic, um, I felt like we weren't getting maybe the information we needed or not being talked to enough. It's a big company, big store, but yeah, it did feel pretty isolating. You know, um, I know that we had, so we got hero pay is what they called it. I guess, um, you got a, we got a $2 raise at the time and they also had unlimited, like call-ins because otherwise you would, you know, get in trouble for absenteeism. You could call in as much as you wanted and they offered up like, you know, if you need to talk to someone, you could. I dove into my writing is what I did. That's how I dealt with everything the best. I don't know. I, I know a lot of people really struggled through that. I heard a lot about, you know, people breaking down and crying and calling out a lot. A lot of people called out. So you had, you were short-staffed and super slammed. 
it was it was rough. I know you witnessed a lot of different behavior from customers, uh, for better and for worse. Could you share an example or two of what you saw? You know, so we started running out of a bunch of different items, you know, obviously like rice and canned goods, things like that. But we started to run out of bags because we were so busy. And so management told us not to double bag if we could. Well, a woman that came into my line, she asked me to double bag her groceries. And I told her that I couldn't do it, but I, I realized once I looked at her that she was not in a great mood and this wasn't going to go well. You kind of pick up on that after a little bit, like if this is going to be bad and I would have just double bagged of groceries, but she snapped immediately and like started grabbing stuff off the conveyor belt and throwing it into her cart. And she also like grabbed the bag of groceries that I was bagging and threw it into her cart too. She even spilled some on the floor and the whole time she's telling me, it's not you. It's not you. It's not you. And then as she's storming out, I'm watching her as she goes, because this is such a scene. And she looks back at me. She says something, licks her hand and slaps it down on the final oh, register. She licked her hand and slammed it down. What was going through your mind? Like I was still in, I was in shock. I was like, what did I just see? Like what did, and what did she say to me too? Like, it, what it it like really taught me was that, you know, people are suffering through whatever they're dealing with all at the same, like, and you have no idea what they're going through. Um, she didn't need to react like that, obviously. Clearly, she didn't need to do that, even no matter what's going on in her life. But I knew in that moment that people were at their breaking point. A lot of people were really struggling. And, you know, I became the whipping boy for people. They're like cashiers and grocery store employees, retail employees in general are kind of, you know, they take a lot of abuse from customers anyway, but it was an extreme time too. But uh, you also got like the best, I, I feel like you got some of the best out of people too. Cause you saw some positives. Yes, definitely. You know, I, I thought the pandemic would be a great leveling event in a lot of ways. And it, and it was, I, I witnessed some really interesting stuff. I remember there was a brain surgeon that would always go through my line. He had like six kids, really, really nice guy. You know, so he, for weeks on end, every week he'd have like, you know, 500, $600 worth of groceries. And he'd come through my line and he he's a brain surgeon, which is a pretty elite job. And he just wanted to know about my writing and about how we were doing in the store and what he could do to help. And he would always like organize his his groceries on the conveyor belt and he bag his own groceries. The guy was a machine, <laughs> absolutely mach- like wonderful person to deal with. And wow. it, it felt like we were in the same space, you know, like, like that we were on the same level. He was more interested in me. And I was like, wow, what's it like to, you know, poke around in some, someone's skull. It was fantastic and life-changing really to meet him. I want to ask about, the book now at this point, because you mentioned you had already finished a rough draft of what was going to be your first book before taking this job at the grocery store. Was there a, a certain point in this experience that you decided you needed to switch gears and and write about this experience? Well, you know, I started writing about it out of necessity. I felt like the, the only way I could really process what I was going through and how crazy everything became was to share what I was going through. So I started a blog called Life on the Grocery Line and just I, I wanted to put it out in the universe. And I knew that I was in a, you know, a unique position where I was 
seen something that a lot of people maybe wouldn't wouldn't understand and I could shed light on what was uh, cashiers were going through. And the blog grew and grew and grew. And I wrote it on it a few months. I'd write like, you know, multiple posts per week and people would share stories with me. And I knew that like, this was an important story to tell. It was much more important to talk about this than some silly novel that I ended up, you know, I read that not, I reread my draft a few months ago and um, let's just say it's not great. (laughs) (laughs) That happens sometimes. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, it's the first novel. And um, this became a project that was much bigger than me. It was about a community and about a group of people that are forgotten by society, I'd say at large, is we take for granted that there's someone going in, like putting the oranges out and doing the work to like make sure that you're fed, that you have the food for your families. And it it took precedent and I, I focused on it. And I like, I think by August of 2020, I was full bore writing the novel and I chose fiction because is the best way to convey all the things we were going through, like the, the isolation, the the fact that like time seemed to just crunch together. You know, that whole summer of 2020 seems like a blurry week, like a fever dream. Yeah. Um, and it was the best way to explain it was through fiction. You know, there's been a fairly recent new swell of movement around supporting essential workers you know, efforts to raise pay and benefits, supporting unionization in some places. It feels like the pandemic shined a light on frontline workers and what they go through. You mentioned the hero pay was there for a bit and went away. What are your your thoughts on all of this? Well, you know, the, once that hero pay went away, that hit me hard. It was $2 raise. But like when you're like, you're used to paying that and like you're, you're finally maybe being able to catch up a little bit more on bills. Cause I took huge, well, I took a risk in 2019, but I also was taking a big pay cut. So I was kind of just scraping by with my apartment, like looking back on it, it's like, how did I survive on the $15 an hour that I was making when they took that away that like, well, it felt like a slap in the face. It's like, what have I been dealing with for, you know, six months that you can just take that away from me? Like, like, it hurt everybody across the board and it didn't make anyone feel valuable. It, it made me it like, I realized where I stood with the company. So I think it's great that like employees are using collective bargaining to get what they want out of their employers. It obviously it's not the only like um, way to get out of that situation, but I think it's, it's fantastic. And I'm happy that they're doing it. And cause it's a tough job. It's so hard and so underappreciated and to take away the hero pay just because, you know, things aren't as crazy as they were before when really nothing changed after I lost that money. Nothing about my job changed. Nothing was easier. It wasn't back to normal. It, was, it wouldn't be like another for another year and a half for it to go back to normal for people. I hope they get everything they want out of it. I think that's great. I'm wondering how your time as an essential frontline worker, how did that change you and and how you see yourself and your role in this world? Hmm. Well, it made it made me like really appreciate what people do. The the things you forget, like you go through the motions and the characters in life on the grocery line, like Dave and Linda, where they ignore the way they treat 
a lot of grocery store workers is it's how I treated people too. Like, even if I've worked in customer service and retail, like for most of my life, and you still forget that you're, cause you're going through the motions you forget who those people are. And like, I know what their value is now. And I'll never forget that. I also know, like, I, I feel smaller, like I understand that grocery store workers are really important. There's all these other people in the, the machine that help it run. And everything is so fragile. Like it's incredibly fragile, our supply chain and the things that keep us fed. And we're in, we're in a country that's wildly successful as far as that stuff goes. We don't have to worry about things most of the time, but like the pandemic leveled that all and it just peeled back the onion and you saw everything for what it really is, I felt like. Do you consider yourself an advocate for essential workers? Yeah, I've, I've tried to use this book and the platforms I've found through it to kind of speak up, like, if nothing else, to try and, you know, talk to, remind people to treat grocery store employees like they're people, you know, like, I, I know you go through the line and it just doesn't matter. It doesn't feel like it matters. It's just some another thing you got to do, get your groceries or two items and leave. But if you give eye contact, you know, remember someone's name, smile now that we can see smiles again right like the it's so much more or it means so much for you to do that and if i can like make an impact in that way at all i think that'd be amazing and if someone's reminded because of the the book not to be a linda or dave don't be that person i'd be really proud of that i think my biggest message with the book was that i want people to laugh it's a dark comedy it's meant to be funny and if we can laugh through, you know, the, the dark parts, the last two years have been rough. It's been really hard. And if you can laugh about it, then I think we can get through anything. Adam Cat is the author of Life on the Grocery Line, a frontline experience in a global pandemic. Adam, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me, Aaron. This was great. Thank you so much. You can read more and find a link to the book in the show notes or at KUNC.org. That's it for today on Colorado Edition. Our executive producer is Sean Corcoran. Webb was edited by Digital Operations Manager Ashley Jeffcoat. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Additional music is by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Erin O'Toole. Thank you so much for listening today. I'll be back next week with more news from Northern Colorado. Have a great weekend.